Good morning, Jonathan, and welcome to the Local Paleo Show. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you very much for coming. And um, good morning, Mark. Good morning. I trust you can see and hear me wonderfully today. We can, for sure. Um, I know it's earlier for you, Jonathan, but <laughs> I'm, a re I'm retired. So for me, uh, this is sort of early. So anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a slow starter in the morning. That's so, okay. back to business. Um, you're the author of the New York Times bestseller book, The Calorie Myth, and your newest book, The Set Point Diet, the 21-day program to permanently change what your body wants to weigh. So, let's talk about your life first. Uh, what is your background, and how did you get into the um, diet nutrition side of things? My story started when I was very, very young. I have a, a really uh, horrific memory of my grandfather, who was like a superhero to me, uh, dying very, very painfully from complications from diabetes involving amputations and just a horrible, horrible experience. And that forever imprinted on me the importance of managing one's health. But that happened so young that I didn't really know what to do about it, but I just knew that it was there and it lit a fire inside of me. <clears throat> and then when I was getting a little bit older, I was disgusted with my body, the way it looked and the way it worked, and which I know a lot of people can relate to. My, I wanted a body more like my big brothers and I couldn't achieve that no matter what I did. And I did some pretty stupid things to try to achieve it and I couldn't. And I then had another really influential experience, which was, <clears throat> so my struggle, which I know doesn't sound like a struggle to maybe many people was I was underweight growing up and I physically couldn't gain weight despite eating 6,000 calories per day and doing a lot of dangerous things involving supplementation. And I eventually became a personal trainer to pay my way through college. And I had a moment where I was sitting across the desk from one of my clients and she was an incredible woman. She was a, you know, adult professional with a family. I mean, she's obviously an incredibly competent and brilliant woman who's been very successful at life. And she's crying across the desk from me saying, Jonathan, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? I'm eating 1200 calories per day and I'm exercising so much. I'm not seeing my family in an effort to lose weight and it's not working. What's wrong with me? And traditionally back then I would have said, well, you just need to eat even less and exercise even more. But I had a flash of, I guess, insight or maybe obviousness now, which is how is it that I can eat 6,000 calories per day and do a bunch of stupid, dangerous stuff and not gain weight while this incredible human being can eat one fifth of those calories and not lose weight? What's going on? What's happening? Why can't either of us control our bodies and why couldn't my grandfather, quote unquote, control his body or just get his body to do what he wanted to do? I don't want to say control in like a dictatorial dictator way. And that caused me to lose faith in everything that I was taught as a personal trainer. I quit my job as a personal trainer. I worked with my parents just to express the frustration I was feeling. They're both college professors. So they said, Jonathan, where are you getting your information? I said, well, I, I you know, I talked to the fit people at the gym and I, I became a personal trainer and I read those books and they said, well, why don't you go to the actual academic research? Why don't you actually go to the source 
And that way it's not the telephone game of this person says this and this and this. I'm inherently a geeky person. I was an engineer at Microsoft for 10 years. So I really like technical things and I like to simplify them and turn them into things that non-engineers can understand and enjoy. So I ended up developing a passion for just reading very dense academic research <laughs> and developed a lot of great friendships with top doctors and researchers at Harvard and Johns Hopkins and UCLA because for 15 years I just read over 1300 studies and had conversations to try to figure out what makes a naturally thin person naturally thin and why some people as much as I struggle to gain weight they struggle to lose weight and what's going on and I ended up going on all these uh, seemingly mysterious journeys down paths way different than nutrition, like uh, gastroenterology and endocrinology and neurobiology, not just vitamins and minerals, like much, much more stuff going on inside the body. And eventually I was, I was convinced to write that down into a book that I self-published called The Smarter Science of Slim. That had an 88-page bibliography with eight-point font, had about 1,300 scientific references because it took me 10 years to write it. That book then got picked up by the literary agent for Harvard Medical School, who then sold it to a major publisher. That, was, that turned into the calorie myth. And then we ended up building a company around the calorie myth to show people what to do instead. The calorie myth was about what not to do. <laughs> and people said, okay, well, what do I do? And that's what uh, my company's saying solution and also the new book, The Set Point Diet, is here to do. It is to show people how the body actually works and what to do to get it to do what you want rather than die a horrible amputated death like my grandfather or constantly be in a frustration with the body or uh, the way your body looks or acts as I was growing up and as so many people are today. Right, right. Um, you call yourself the pioneer of wellness engineer. Um, can you tell us more about this? By trade, I am an engineer. As I said, I worked at Microsoft for 10 years. And what is so exciting about what we do at Sane Solution, which is the company that I since started after uh, departing my job at Microsoft, is as an engineer, an engineer, for example, who's building a bridge doesn't care about anyone's opinion about a bridge. They don't come in to bridge building with a, uh, a uh, biases about, they don't care about being right. They care about the bridge standing up, right? As an engineer, my only job is to create things that work, period. I don't have skin in the game in the sense that I am not a researcher. I don't have research to defend. I haven't published papers that I can't now retract. My job as an engineer at Microsoft was to create software that worked. When someone came into a usability lab and they couldn't figure out how to use the software, we never said, stupid user, you need to try harder. We said, wow, that is poorly designed software that we need to fix because if it doesn't work, the fault is on the designer or the engineer side, not the user. And so when we talk about wellness engineering, it's incredibly exciting because... I and my team have the unique opportunity to take peer-reviewed research that is just unequivocally true and to engineer it into a way of living that works, period. And the challenge we face is it doesn't fit into, it doesn't fit neatly into any dogma. It doesn't fit neatly into veganism or it doesn't fit neatly into keto or it doesn't fit neatly into the South Beach diet because we don't 
have any opinions or biases. We just know what works in the real world based on the research and on over 27,000 people that we've helped with this program. And we're committed to doing what works. And that's what an engineer, it's what wellness engineering is. Mm. And how is that different than biohacking? By definition, a hack is a temporary and potentially dangerous fix. I know this because the term hack was actually created by software developers, engineers. When we at Microsoft said we're going to hack together a fix, what that meant is that there was a fundamental problem in the system that we were going to put a temporary hack in place to deal with it, which we know that if we didn't come back and really fix it would cause more trouble long-term. Mm -hmm. So a biohack, like put it this way, imagine you're sitting on an airplane and they come over the loudspeaker and they say, your flight has been delayed due to mechanical problems, but good news, we hacked something together and we're going to take off right now. Mm. Chances are you probably wouldn't want to go up in the air, especially like, and if that doesn't resonate with you, imagine your children were on that plane. Would you tell them to get off that plane or to stay on that plane? I don't think we should hack together anything. I think your body is the most brilliant and prized gift you've ever been given, and it deserves healing, not hacking. Okay. Well, now we're clear about this. Um, what does the acronym SANE stands for? At the core of the 15 years of research that sits at the heart of the quote-unquote wellness technology we've developed is a concrete way to define what high-quality food is. Because right now, the term healthy doesn't mean anything. And what I mean by that is if you ask 10 people on the street what's healthy, you're going to get 10 different answers, which means there is no objective definition of what healthy is. As an engineer, I like measurable, provable things. So what we found when doing all this research is that there are four factors which are not arguable. They are just objectively measurable criteria which we can use to identify the ability of food to cause humans to thrive or to cause humans to suffer. And we abbreviate those four factors using the acronym SANE. The S stands for satiety or how quickly a calorie fills you up and how long it keeps you full. This is an objectively measurable thing in labs, for instance, if you've ever heard of the potato chip Pringles, it advertises once you pop, you can't stop. Mm -hmm. This food, quote unquote, is telling you eating these calories will make you hungrier. Mm. So contrast that to eating a delicious, satisfying dinner of maybe some wonderful grilled salmon and some deliciously sauteed kale with some healthy fats, 600 calories of Pringles and soda will satisfy you less or actually maybe make you hungrier while 600 calories of higher quality, high satiety food will fill you up and keep you full for a long time. The S is satiety. As I mentioned, the A is aggression. This has to do with the hormonal impact of food. This is not something that can be debated. We can objectively measure what happens to your insulin levels when you eat food A versus food B. And we can see which foods cause an aggressive spike in hormones versus which foods are unaggressive and keep your hormones in balance. N stands for nutrition, which we all know there are different levels of vitamins, minerals, amino acids, and fatty acids in foods. 
But we take it one step further and we talk about nutritional quality, which is the ratio of essential nutrients, nutrients that are required for life to things that are non-essential, addictive, or toxic. So for instance, people will say, hey, this, this frosted flakes are great because they're enriched with vitamins and minerals. The challenge is putting a vitamin pill in a can of cola doesn't make that can of cola nutritious, even though it has a lot of nutrients in it, because we have to look at the ratio of good to bad, not just the total amount of good. So we talk about satiety, aggression, nutrition, that's the end. And then the E finally is efficiency. The three macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbohydrate are treated very differently by the body. Some are more efficiently converted into body fat if eaten in excess, and others are less efficiently converted into body fat if eaten in excess. So that's, that's all a lot of science, but the point of it is, is we have a proprietary and actually getting patented way of saying we can take any food and measure its sanity. We can provide you with an objective definition of which foods will take you closer to your goals and which foods will take you further from your goals. And we can make that work within any lifestyle you have. So if you're keto, we can show you how to eat sanely within keto. If you're paleo, we can show you how to be a sane paleo eater. If you're vegan, we can show you how to eat the sanest foods within a vegan template. And because of that, we're really excited. Great, great, thank you. Uh, about your book, um can you give us a short version of <clears throat> what is the set point diet? The set point diet is the first and only method of living that is specifically engineered to change the 10 or 15 pound range that your body fights to keep you at in terms of body weight, no matter how much you eat or how much you exercise. So if you've ever had the feeling that no matter how hard you try to starve yourself, or how much jogging or running you try to do, your body wants to defend a certain weight or kind of a narrow weight range, you're not imagining things. That's how every biological organism on the planet works. We seek to maintain homeostasis or balance. And that applies to blood pressure, that applies to blood sugar, and that applies to body weight. We used to hear the term set point theory in the 80s, it's not a theory anymore. Since we've discovered hormones like leptin and myriad other things, we now know that the body works, the brain, the gut, and your hormones work to keep your body at a about 10 pound range. And you can try to fight that range as much as you want, but that's about as productive as trying to fight yourself to sleep less or to try to fight your way into going to the bathroom less frequently. Like it just doesn't, that you're not gonna win battles against your biology, but you can change your biology. You can improve and heal your biology. So the set point diet is the first and only way of eating that has been shown to help you lower your set point or what your body wants to weigh and is therefore the most exciting way of eating to achieve permanent weight loss and health rather than a temporary deviation from the set point. Right. Well, I'm kind of confused here because typically, uh, this is what I observed, is that you have uh, someone in their 20s or even 30s, uh, you know, uh, healthy, strong, and, and over the years, they become bigger, fatter, and healthier. So if we have a certain point 
at let's say 20, 25, 30, then yeah, you're saying that the set point keeps on moving up uh, with age or, I mean, I have a hard time understanding that, that, that concept here. There's a, there can be some confusion in terms of if you say set point, then how could obesity even exist, for example? If, I, if I'm saying you have a set point, if you're not born obese, then mm. how can you even become obese? Yeah. And the analogy that I would use is, let's say that you're in your home and your home becomes very, very warm. It's like 95 degrees in your house. And you're saying, why is my house so warm? Well, there's at least two explanations. One is that you don't have a thermostat. The other is that your thermostat is malfunctioning. So what we know is that, I mean, leptin exists and leptin is secreted in, a, in the precise proportion to the amount of fat you have on your body. And there are specific receptors in your brain that look at leptin and try to downregulate or upregulate appetite and calorie burn based on its perception of the amount of fat on your body. So we do see a negative feedback system on your body around fatness. So if we're seeing our, our weight creep up over time, if we're seeing that set point range creep up over time, it doesn't so much indicate that there isn't a set point. It indicates that the set point can change and that that change, I would argue, is what we uh, in the West call disease. Let me give you a specific example. We know that blood sugar is homeostatically regulated. We know, no one would question that your body works to automatically balance blood sugar. Mm -hmm. Adult onset diabetes also exists, which is the body's breakdown and the ability to automatically balance blood sugar. Mm. So diabetes doesn't mean there isn't a homeostatic system. It doesn't mean there isn't a blood sugar set point. It means that can be broken. And then what happens is we start to manually do that balancing act. That's what insulin is. That's what metformin does. It takes over manually what should be an automatic process. Same thing applies to blood pressure. We call the disease of the set point around blood pressure hypertension. Mm. So for body weight, what we've done historically is we have ignored the fact that your body is fighting to keep you at a certain weight. And yes, absolutely, there are events in life that change that set point. We can talk about what's actually happening underneath the covers, for example, example pregnancy, for example, taking certain medications like SSRIs, menopause, andropause. These have tremendous impact on one's hormones, which absolutely impact one's set point. So the question is, what is causing the set point to become elevated and what can we do to bring it back down versus a question of does a set point exist? Does that make sense? So are you saying there's a way to control the set point or adjust it like you would a thermostat? Yes, what the research suggests is that about 50% of your set point is strongly genetically influenced. So there are, you know, three basic body types, ectomorph, endomorph, mesomorph, where ectomorphs are generally a little bit taller and lankier. Mesomorphs are in the middle and endomorphs are just genetically a bit shorter and stockier. It will be very difficult, if not impossible, for an ectomorph to become an endomorph. Just like if you, if you think about sports, if you think about American football, you have these really, really big guys called linemen, and then you have kind of like skinnier, faster people, the wide receivers. 
There's no amount of food that a wide receiver could eat to make their body comfortably be like a lineman's body. And there's no amount of diet and exercise that a lineman could do to make their body thrive like a wide receiver's body. We have different body types. However, we can optimize that body type and we do have the ability uh, clearly to elevate our set point and research is showing us that we do have the opportunity to lower the set point. And the way we do that is very different than the way we temporarily deviate from it. The way we temporarily deviate from it is to starve ourselves. The way we change it is by healing the underlying dysfunction. Let me give you one more analogy. Obviously, we have a set point for body temperature, 98.6 degrees. And that doesn't vary much between people. It does vary slightly, but not very much. And let's say that you have a condition which is causing you to have a fever or an elevation in your body temperature set point. You absolutely, through energy deprivation, you could put yourself in an ice bath and you could temporarily lower your body temperature. But because you're not fixing the underlying cause of the increase in body temperature, you will likely make the problem worse over time. So what we need to do is look at what is causing it, not try to suppress it on the surface, but fix it at the root. And what we now know is the root cause is neurological inflammation, hormonal dysregulation and dysbiosis in your gut. And when we can reverse those three things, you will always see a drop in set point. Mm. Well, uh, taking me and my family as an example, for example, I have a brother and sister. They're younger than me. Uh, my sister tends to be the, the skinny type, but she's not following a specific diet, and, unlike me. Uh, my brother, on the other hand, is on the heavy side. I would, you know, I would say he's overweight for sure. Um, not obese, but overweight. And I'm, I'm in the middle. I follow the paleo diet. I've been a nutritionist for almost 20 years. So I pay very good attention to my diet. Uh, so if genetics would, uh, would explain part of that, uh, within the same family, you have three different types of uh, a body or, or, or range of, of weights. Um, how do you explain that? Just uh, different diets or... While you will share, yeah, what I hear you asking is certainly there will be some genetic similarity between siblings. Yeah. Also, certainly there will be genetic differences between siblings. I have a brother and a sister. We have very different personalities. We do share, and we also have very different baseline levels of happiness. I mean, there, there are similarities. We're all very passionate about education, but there also are differences. So what we can do, which is really interesting, is if you wanna look at the impact of genetics, we can look at twin studies, because twin studies have been done and they are fascinating. And what they'll do, for example, is they will take twins, such, let's say they have the Smith twins, identical twins, and the Thomas twins. So you have two pairs of twins. It's kind of hard to describe this because we're talking about pairs of people. But what they'll do is they'll overfeed the Smith twins. And the Smith twins, will of course gain weight. They will not gain as much weight as would be expected. Nobody does by calorie math, but mm. they will gain almost the exact same amount of weight consistently. And then they'll overfeed the Thomas twins the exact same amount of food. And the Thomas twins will gain the same amount of weight, but they will not gain the same amount of weight as the Smith twins. Mm. So the, the Smith twins may each gain two pounds. The Thomas twins may each gain eight pounds, 
And it's amazing to see that people who share genetics will gain or lose the same approximate amount of weight when they share 100% of genetics. But when you look across genetic pairs, it varies. So I think that's a really strong testament to the impact of genetics. Now, I'm curious what would happen if you split those... Um, sorry, Mr. Wood right there. Um, two siblings born together. Twins. Twins, okay. When you split the twins, let's say um, uh, they were separated at birth and raised in different families, mm -hmm. would you say that they would, uh, let's say one could become heavier and the other one skinny because of their environment and how they were raised by different families with different backgrounds? Absolutely. So th let's be very clear that the presence of a set point doesn't mean you can't gain or lose weight. Right. What it means is that it will either make weight loss or weight gain easier or harder. There's no question that, you know, my, I'm Polish and I don't mean to get dark, but this is an extreme example. My ancestors were deeply impacted by the Holocaust and by concentration camps. None of my ancestors gained weight during that time period because they were starved, right? Yeah. So it's very clear that if you don't eat, you will lose weight. But it's also very clear that not eating will kill you and make your life horrible. So the question is more, what, how can we work with our body? So first of all, how can we fundamentally understand how our body works? How can, if I am someone who is born with a higher set point, I not feel ashamed or like I'm a failure as a person because I can't see my abs while my friend down the street eats nonsense and can see her abs mm. because we understand that we're starting from different points. Mm. And we also understand that, for example, eating less does nothing to change your set point. In fact, it has been shown to elevate mm. your set point. So the okay, key so is what, not that was... lifestyle choices don't impact you. It's we can better guide lifestyle choices based on this biological understanding. What I was getting at is, uh, based on reasoning, if you have twins, exact twins, raised in different environment, ideally they should have the same exact set point and neither they should lose weight or gain weight uh, according to their environment, right? And yet, what's your observation on that? So just to rephrase your question, I, I heard you say that if you have twins, and they have the same set point, they shouldn't gain weight or lose weight based on their environment. Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. So the set point does not mean you can't gain weight or lose weight based on the environment. Okay. It means that your body will fight to prevent you from gaining or losing weight outside of about a 15 pound range, un mm -hmm. unless that set point is elevated. So let me give you a very specific example. You right now have a set point. You eat the paleo diet you maintain a weight fairly effortlessly. Yeah. If you were to eat less of that exact same diet, you would temporarily lose weight mm -hmm. until you stopped starving yourself. And then you would probably go back to the weight you have right now. Mm -hmm. If you right now kept the same amount of calories, let's say you eat 2000 calories per day mm -hmm. and you changed where you got those calories from, 
you would in no way, shape, or form change the quantity of calories your body is consuming, and you would gain weight. Mm. And you would gain weight because the quality of calories you're consuming would change the level of inflammation in your brain, they would change your hormonal balance, and they would change the balance of certain microbiota in your gut, mm -hmm. and it would cause your body to pursue fat storage in a more preferential way. And these are, that's, that's the key takeaway is that I promise you right now, if you want to do an experiment, measure how many calories you're eating, get the same amount of calories from processed starches, sugars, and fats, mm -hmm. and watch as your body changes because your set point is being elevated. Right, right. So the set point is somewhat independent of, I mean, it can be influenced by outside forces. It okay. is completely influenced by outside. That's the whole, if it wasn't influenceable, this book couldn't exist, right? Because <laughs> the book would say, you have a set point, you're Tough. screwed. <laughs> <laughs> right. So then, so then your book is about influencing or controlling the set point. Absolutely. And the key differentiation is that, so let's use that thermostat example from earlier. Let's say your house is 95 degrees. You could say the answer is to like open the windows and to buy space heaters and to do all these other things. Well, it, if you just went and looked at your thermostat, it just got bumped up. And if you just slide it back down, you don't need to do all that other nonsense. So if you don't understand the science of the set point, you're going to say eat less and not you personally, but you will be told eat less and exercise more, which does nothing to change your set point. And that's why it's frustrating and that's why it fails for 95.4% of people. So instead of focusing on the quantity of food you're eating or the quantity of exercise you're getting, the research shows that if you focus on the quality, that's what paleo does. Paleo doesn't yeah. say count your calories. It says change the quality of what you're eating. That's what keto does. It yeah. doesn't say change the quantity of what you're eating. It says change the quality of what you're eating. And part of the reasons that those lifestyles are so successful is because they are focused on the quality of food not the quantity of food, and therefore they do have an impact on the set point. And what I find to be so exciting is in some ways, while they are very helpful, imagine that you could make them even more helpful by, you know, you could take a bunch of darts and throw them at the wall and some of them might hit the bullseye. But if you could see the bullseye and if you could aim directly for the bullseye, you have a much higher chance of hitting it. And if you take what we've outlined in the set point diet and you've taken the same principles you can take paleo, keto, veganism, any of those things which focus on food quality, and you can refine them into the most effective set point lowering protocol possible. So if I understand, you don't uh, specifically recommend a particular diet. Uh, how, what do you recommend then to your followers or your readers? There's four basic food groups that we focus on in this order of volume, non-starchy vegetables, nutrient-dense protein, whole food fats, and low fructose fruits. And within those four basic food groups, we can make that work within a vegetarian lifestyle. We can make that work within a vegan lifestyle. We can make that work within a paleo lifestyle. We can even make it work within a keto lifestyle. And we can also refine it further, but that's the basic template. Okay. Well, it sounds interesting. Maybe I should get a copy of your book. <laughs> I think you'll like it. Just out of... Uh... Curiosity, scientific curiosity, so to speak. Um, Mark? 
Uh, well, I'm conscious of the time. I know Jonathan said he's got a quite quite a tight schedule today, so I don't want to get into it um, too much. Um, one quick question, then. You said that the set point can be broken. What type of things will break the set point, as it were? I will give you some, I mean, I could say low quality foods, but it doesn't really help anybody. No. That's the high level answer, but I'll give you some specific examples. And a lot of these examples come from rodent studies because they'd be illegal to do on humans. But for example, in rodents, so we know that the set point is determined by the level of inflammation in your brain or its influence. These are the things you can do to raise or lower your set point. You can raise or lower the level of inflammation in your brain, neuroinflammation. You can change the ratio of certain hormones and you can change the ratio of certain bacteria in your gut. And we know, for example, in rodent models, you can look at the ventromedial or lateral hypothalamus of a rodent, which is their appetite regulation centers. Same thing applies in the human brain. You can give them MSG, which mm -hmm. is a toxic food additive. And in proportion to the amount of MSG you give the rodent, inflammation will develop and the rodent will spontaneously eat more. Right. And if you give the rodent EPA or, and DHA, or these sort of uh, animal-derived sources of omega-3 fatty acids, they have a dose-dependent decrease in neuroinflammation. So researchers are essentially able to use MSG to dial the, the, the brain-related aspects of the set point up and omega-3 fatty acids to dial it back down. And so that's one example of, for example, eating less MSG and more omega-3 fatty acids it would serve to reason that if you got an fMRI scan before doing that and an fMRI scan after doing that, you would see a different level of inflammation in your brain and a different level of appetite and cravings. And that's how your body kind of manifests your set point. Okay. So, I mean, so therefore, as you said, you know, poor food will, will break the set point. What about things like stress, emotional problems and that type of thing? Hugely impactful. And that's why generally diets are only addressing one piece of the puzzle. For yeah. example, if cortisol has an impact on you, which it obviously does, <laughs> then for instance, saying that, you know, not paying any attention to stress, not mm. paying any attention to the shame that people feel when they eat certain foods or not, the impact of feeling ashamed about eating a certain food can arguably be more detrimental than eating that food because of shame's impact on cortisol. Mm. Uh, would you say lack of sleep is an influence as well? Absolutely. They're the, the major factors that, and I mean, that's just from a basic perspective. One could eat the perfect quote unquote paleo diet or the perfect keto diet. And just anecdotally, if, if one ate the perfect paleo diet for seven days and didn't sleep, they would be really hurting on the eighth day. Hmm. And if someone ate the standard American diet for seven days, and got eight hours of sleep a night, on the eighth day, they would be functional. That's mm -hmm. what most Americans do. So the point is not that diet doesn't matter. The point is that we have to take a, what we would call sane approach to your entire life. Oh. Your relationships matter a tremendous amount. Yeah. <laughs> so relationships, sleep, stress, self-talk, movement, eating, they're all part of what determine your set point. Mm. Okay, I think um, we don't want to take up too much more of your time because I know you've got to shoot off. Uh, where can people get more information about um, the Setpoint Diet and about you and everything that you're doing? We have some wonderful free resources on our website, which is sanesolution.com. That's S-A-N-E solution.com, sanesolution.com. 
And I also have a website just for me personally. If you're curious about me, my website is jonathanbaylor.com. Super job. Alan, back to you. Okay, time for the closing. So here we go. Thank you again, Jonathan, for being on the Low Carb Paleo Show. And as we say in Texas, à votre santé, y'all. <laughs> oh, I was just a laugh. Ha no, just <laughs> Thank you, Lloyd. Have a good day. Yep, it's been lovely having you. Thanks.